Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 133rd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today, I had the pleasure of being joined by Eugene Lipoff, MD, and Jamie Mustard. They are the co-authors of The Invisible Machine, The Startling Truth About Trauma and the Scientific Breakthrough That Can Transform Your Life. The publisher is Ben Bella Books. Dr. Eugene Lipoff is a complex kinesiologist and has been called the Einstein of his field. He has discovered and invented the dual systematic reset, or sympathetic reset, rather, the DSR, which was endorsed by President Obama in 2010. His research has about a 85 to 90 percent success rate in reducing the effects of trauma. Jamie Mustard is an artist, a futurist, a multimedia consultant and writer. His work is on the perception of the physical world. As an iconist, his passion is to teach the science and the art of obviousness, the anatomy of what causes any idea, art, or message to stand out and take hold. Welcome to the show, Gene and Jamie. Thank you. Eugene's on speakerphone in my office, so it's he's a, he's it's a it's a it's a little jerry rigged, but uh, I wanted us to be able to be together even if it was for a short time. He's in clinic right now. Absolutely. So, uh, Eugene, particularly from your end, do you want to give a, a brief summary as to what you think the book's about? <laughs> well, I, well, I hope I know it's about. <laughs> the Kudo Machine is that that term we're using to stand for sympathetic system of fight or flight system. So it pervades everywhere, and when it gets overactive, then people have symptoms of what currently is called PTSD, which I to change the name to PTSD, what brings red injury. So the reason the book was written, I believe, is because I was able, I was fortunate enough to start treating people with PTSD successfully doing a sympathetic blog that has been out for many years, but I was able to adopt adopt it to treat people uh, for uh, PTSD rapidly, and then we modified the blog to call it now DSR, which is a more advanced version of it. And the book talks about the biology of it, but it also has real heart in it. It has real patient stories and how it changed their lives. Um, that's where Jerry came in to organize it like that. You know, my particular part contribution was called the science. And I think my life story of trauma hopefully will be 
required to people to get treated. Yeah, and I, and I do want to come back to that in a moment. Uh, Jamie, for your part, it, it is indeed, as, as Gene is suggesting, unique to have a, a doctor and an artist uh, team up together on the book. Uh, from your perspective and your, your part of the contribution, what uh, more do you want to say as to what the book is about? My... <laughs> as an introduction. I think Eugene or Dr. Lipoff is being extremely humble. I think that, <laughs> I think that he has uh, uh, pioneered and invented the most important m medical breakthrough since the discovery of penicillin in 1926. Uh, or not, excuse me, in 1928. Uh, I think that it dwarfs the polio vaccine in terms of lives that it can save. I think that um, we're living in a toxic society that we're not designed biologically to endure the stress that we uh, that we, we live under as human beings in the modern world, and that maybe 40 to 50% of the U.S. and global population conservatively have a physical system in their body it's, that you can see on a brain scan. It's, it's as broken as a broken leg. That's why we call it the invisible machine, because it's a, it's a machine like your leg. It's a machine part like your leg. You just can't see it, okay? And you can see it on a brain scan, and we're all walking around with the symptoms of running from a tiger. We have anxiety. We have mild paranoia. We, we have a sense of doom. We have hypervigilance, hyperarousal, all these kind of symptoms that you'd have if you were kind of threatened. And we're, and, but we get, our body gets stuck in fight or flight. And what uh, Dr. Lubov has figured out how to do uh, is to reset the body's sympathetic nervous system to the pre-trauma state. So we're no longer in fight or flight. And okay. I, yeah. And, and, and Eugene, um, if you want to briefly describe for us what the reset, the DSR, in, entails, I think that's important. I think Jamie's just done a great job laying out the significance of the book and how many people it can uh, make a difference for. But if you can describe the, the technique itself briefly. Yeah, so the patient with light the table, they put a IV in for safety, pain off the neck, and I use ultrasound to figure out where we need to go after I go about my chip to that open the neck, but we can avoid that by using uh, ultrasound. And then I spent some needle up under ultrasound guide. We put in uh, a TV key, which is the same drug that we use for women who are pregnant, or if you're old, you know, safe been around forever. And the results are typically the 10, 15, 20 minutes, sometimes to the other side. A lot of times it works rapidly, and uh, my operative time is about five minutes. But pretty quick. The point, the pretty thing I, I like about it, compliance is very high, right? Something comes in with the procedures that feel better. You don't have to keep taking medications all day long. And you think what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to reset the pathetic to the pre trauma state so that we, without covering it up with something, we're actually trying to get to the bottom of the problem. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the efficacy is, is amazing. The, the quickness of uh, it taking effect is impressive. And having worked previously in my career at one point as a, a attorney for consumer affairs, where we saw lack, actually a lot of overuse and repetitive use without advantage in certain procedures that this one can take hold so readily and well is, is uh, close to astonishing, quite honestly. It's, it's amazing stuff. Tell you one more thing, if I may. Sure. Go see patients, unfortunately, that. But so people talk about what the disease or not. The Jamie did great job explaining the biological phenomena. But let's walk through what trauma is. So somebody has trauma of any kind. We wrote a paper 
left ear that twenty two different types of trauma all respond to this procedure. So it's not trauma specific. But the top trauma occurs of any kind that creates by the flight that some cause a visual exchange. When it's too much or over period of time, you would be neglected, whatever. Um, it produces over invasion of sympathetic system and it gets stuck in that position in the sense that there are extra nerve fibers of sympathetic starts which grow. And as long as that's been seen, then it increases norepinephrine level, which gives symptoms of PTSD in a continuous basis. So the local anesthetic in the neck to reverse that. So a local anesthetic left eight hours and left eight years. And that's why such an exciting development from my perspective as an anesthesiologist, who I've seen out through this procedure, but the physiology of that is pretty cool. Yeah, no, I think, as Jamie said earlier, you're, if anything, understating the the, the tremendous impact of, of what you have here. Uh, Jamie, you have yourself quite a, a good knowledge firsthand of what the reset involves. Can you can you say anything that you want to add regarding the, the the patient experience? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, the problem, this, this thing's been around, he invented this 20 years ago. He really, I think he published on it for the first time in 2008. Obama endorsed it within a couple of years of that. Um, it's been on Joe Rogan, 60 Minutes, CBS This Morning. It's been written up, wired, countless papers. But whenever we see this, we see it at the extreme. We see it, you know, it's a 9-11 first responder, a Navy SEAL. You know, it, 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 we see it as something that people with extreme trauma do. The, the reality is, is that two things cause this biological change in the body, which is being stuck in fight or flight. Um, and we know, even though the entire world operates on this being this ambiguous disorder, any with simple logic, we can understand that trauma would, of course, have to be biological. Okay, if we beat a dog or a goat or a chicken or any animal, you're going to see two two things happen. It's going to get really timid, uh, flight, or really aggressive, fight. Now we don't have a sentient goat. Okay, the goat does not have a disorder. We've known for 50 years or longer that we've somehow changed the biology of that animal. Human beings are no different. But we continue to look at this thing like it's a mental issue when it's a physiological issue. Dr. Lipov discovered the source of that issue and the reset. The problem with it is it gets collapsed with all these other modalities. It's not. It's the difference between physical therapy and a broken leg. This is the broken leg. Every, almost everything else you could do, which is very valid. We need talk therapy. We need MDR. We need uh, psilocybin. We need all these things. These are therapies. This is the broken leg. As far as myself, I was somebody that experienced extreme trauma as a child, uh, parental abandonment, institutional environments, things you can't even imagine that are survivable uh, mentally. And uh, I never associated myself with trauma because where I grew up, you couldn't be a victim. Okay. I started looking back seven years ago, finally got therapy, got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, didn't really want to admit that, uh, but I eventually hugged the cactus and embraced it. Uh, two and a half years ago, a little longer, I, I braved COVID in the middle of COVID. I went and did this reset, uh, in Chicago in the winter. And it was the most transformative thing I've ever done in my life. I felt comfortable in my body, uh, and was able to live a solar existence for the first time in my life. That's what it, that's what it represents to me. Sure. And, and, and Gene, maybe one last question before we, we let you go for your part. Um, so I, I want to kind of talk about two parts of trauma. One is uh, your family roots in Ukraine and being Jewish. 
uh, but also the stress, quite honestly, of being an inventor, because we all know that uh, one can run into skeptics and people who just seem to like to shoot things down at times. Uh, can you maybe speak to, to both of those aspects of, of stress, if not outright trauma? Yeah. So Eugene, you know, he's one of the most compassionate people I ever met. You know, we don't get along always perfectly. Doctor and artist is an interesting guy. <laughs> Stephen Swalker just made a movie about that, about his the, his parents, one being an engineer and one being an artist. Um, I'll meet the Fablemans. But, uh, but I will say that he's the most compassionate human being I've ever met and the smartest human being I've ever met in terms of a scientist. And I live in a world where I get to revolve around incredibly smart people, right? Um, so one is, you know, he was born uh, in the Ukraine. He lives in, his dad was a physician who made less money than a butcher. And there was, a, you know, his friends when he was growing up came across an old Soviet ordinance outside of Kiev and his father told him and them not to go back. He never went back, but his friends went and blow them, blew themselves to bits. <laughs> uh, you know, he grew up, his father worked at a TBI clinic under the crush of the Iron Curtain where he saw people coughing up blood his old childhood. You know, he um, he lit, he was not allowed to practice being a Jew because he was under the crush of the Iron Curtain. When he finally came to America and went to, I guess, uh, Northwestern, while he was doing his surgery residency, his mother killed herself under the care of a psychiatrist. It made him leery. He had to drop out of being a surgeon because he couldn't concentrate. And that's why he became an anesthesiologist, which in certain ways was less of a challenge for him and probably created the room for him to invent. If he were here, what he would tell you in terms of the stress of being an inventor is he would tell you the story of Semmelweis, which is who in the you know late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, uh, was a doctor in Austria and Germany who went around telling people that but at that time they thought that if you're, a baby was five times more likely, a woman was five times more likely to die during childbirth if a baby was born in a hospital as opposed to at home. And they didn't know why. Um, at that time, they thought germs were transferred by smells, by odors. This guy, Semmelweis, figured out in maybe 1860, 1870, that he had germ theory. He figured out that, uh, that, that the doctors were not washing their hands between medical surgeries, cadaver uh, dissecting, and they'd run over and give birth to a baby. He started promoting this all over Austria and Germany. Uh, for his trouble, he was uh, stuck in a mental asylum where he was beaten to death six weeks later. So Eugene has had incredible, incredible pushback from what is a very simple, obvious mechanism. When you start to understand, if you read the book and you start to understand how the nervous system works and that we, it makes sense that we would all have to have an identical reaction to the threat of a tiger chasing us, which is fight or flight. Um, and and uh, if it was a mental thing and it was kind of randomized, we wouldn't survive as a species. So, so he, he would tell you he's not, you know, men, you know, he's not Semmelweis and he, how far, what he's done in 20 years, the military is doing 20, 15, 20,000 of these a year, a private equity firm, uh, in, three and a half years ago, teamed up with him to open up clinics all over the world. They've got 35 clinics in the United States. I don't work for those guys. Uh, they're called Stella Center, StellaCenter.com. But I will say they don't pay me. I'm not endorsing them. Be out on this. Uh, they use what are called the Stella Protocols, which is all the modern protocols. If you're not getting this from Stella Center, you're not getting this. And so there's, because the shot is based off of a shot that was developed in 1926, so we know it's safe. Um, if you're not getting the, the dual sympathetic reset uh, from uh, the Stella Center, you're not getting it. So I would, 
you know, I, I, I only say that because that is the only place that has the protocols that has the predictable efficacy. Yeah, no, I, I thank you for that answer, and particularly this story of what happened to the the doctor uh, who you know was was put to death for his invention. Uh, that's just an amazing story. Uh, I want to go back to your your equal honesty regarding your own childhood and stress, because one of the things that really struck me in reading the book was I think there's a lot of Americans who uh, just don't know how stressful, how traumatic uh, it can happen in a lot of places. But one of them is inner city life. And the things that people are going through that I think people just are, are blind to, including legislators who make you know the appropriations to help people out. If you, if one could create an immersive experience for those people and try to get them to know what you know, what might it look like? What 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 things are they just missing? Wow, what a question! What a question! Here's how I explain it to people, and I want people to understand this, and we have all the time in the world, Dan, if you want to go a little longer, but I want people to understand this in a non-political way, okay? But I'm going to use, use politicians to open up the question, okay? If you take somebody like Al Gore, who's liberal, or George W. Bush, who's a conservative, and you make them president of the United States, or by, you put them in political power, well, these are guys, one's left, one's right, that grew up with extreme wealth, Okay. They're going to be like, unless you have the experience of poverty, you can't really understand it. Okay. Just like, it's like, if that's a human nature with anything, right? It's hard to have total empathy for something you've never seen or really experienced. When you have somebody like Bill Clinton, no matter what you think of his politics, you have a guy that grew up in a double wide, but then becomes a Rhodes Scholar and president. So he goes, he has a different kind of an arc, right? He's going to have a deeper understanding of people um, just because of his experience. He's gone from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich. So he's going to have a breadth of understanding that you can't, that doesn't go the other way. It's really, really hard unless you move to India, you know, and work in a, you know, a, um, a, a mission or something. It's really, under, you have to live like that for a long time. And, and to answer the question, um, so is it's, it's pressure. It's pressure upon pressure upon pressure. You know, you might, you're worried. You're worried about food. You're not getting the human touch or love or emotional needs that that are uh, primal to our bi evolutionary biology. Um, you, in my case, I didn't go to school. Um, it's just a feeling of feeling anxious and concerned about the next day all the time. But you know. One of the things that I discovered, how I contributed to this, I was at Fort Bragg do working on the Iconist, which you inter interviewed me for my kind of Malcolm Gladwell-esque book, right, about why things stand out, perception of the physical world. And um, I got invited to speak there, and I did some PTSD meetings, and the guy that ran the Health Initiative Task Force there, Jeff Dardia, showed me the symptoms of operator syndrome, which is if you're overseas in Afghanistan, and you never see a firefight, but you're there for two years, and you have the pressure of maybe an IED exploding or dying every day, and you're away from your family, just carrying that allostatic load, extreme chronic stress for too long, will permanently, will break your this invisible machine. It'll turn you into chronic fight or flight. Human beings are designed to be in fight or flight for about 30 seconds. A tiger jumps out of nowhere, we either kill it or it kills us in 30 seconds, and then it's resolved. We're not designed to feel to be in uh, in chronic fight or flight mode for more than just a blast. 
Okay, so if we carry extreme stress for too long, it also trips this machine. So when I first saw the symptoms of what chronic fight or flight is, 24 hours a day, 365 a year, seven days a week, the first time I saw those symptoms, they were symptomatic of operator syndrome, which is soldiers coming back from war, special operators coming back from war. And I didn't see soldiers when I first saw those symptoms. I saw the Mexican neighborhoods where I grew up in LA, the stress of that, the stress of, am I going to be able to provide for my family tomorrow? What if I get fired? What if I get pulled over? What if I get a ticket? You know, uh, and then how am I going to pay that $500 ticket? Like it just, these things add up in ways where you're just constantly thinking about how you're going to make it through the next day. Um, and it is, it's just a being soul crushed and being strained, stressed out and, uh, and I could talk about the physiological effects in the body and how the, phys- the, the science of this mechanism, but it just leaves you, uh, it puts you in a state where you're, you're, that when, that you, where you're just chronically stuck in fight or flight. So you're chronic, and those seven symptoms would be, th- those seven symptoms would be uh, what would happen if a tiger were in front of you, which would be you'd be anxious, you'd be mildly paranoid, you'd have a sense of doom, you'd be hypervigilant, hyperaroused, you'd be reactive and have a hair trigger, you wouldn't be able to sleep. 25% of these guys that come back from war have ED because you can't have sex if a tiger's chasing you. In the military, ultimately, you know, we're, we're in the military where we're trained to protect. If you feel like you're going to die at every moment, and that's what these nerves in your neck are telling your, your amygdala when it gets stuck. If you're feeling that that way 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you're feeling a certain way that you're, you're only designed to really feel for about 30 to 90 seconds, and then you're supposed to calm down and go back to baseline. Yeah, no, I think that's really striking. I, just the other day, because the Surgeon General put out a an essay about the impact of loneliness, and the, the uh, comparison made in that case was that uh, enforced loneliness that you're not seeking is so corrosive to our physical and, frankly, mental health that it's the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. That's just being lonely. That's before we're talking about, uh, you know, the the extreme anxiety and acute uh, state of vulnerability that you're describing. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what I experienced as a kid, all of society is experiencing now of any and every class. And I can explain that. Gabor Mate just came out with a book called The Myth of Normal, where he talks about, you know, um, if you were to invent a society to make people crazy, he would, he would invent this one. Okay, so the digital world is, has made the entire world be experiencing what I experienced as a child the last 20 years. And I could explain that, you know, connection. But, you know, we're, we're not designed to feel um, be in fight or flight for more than 30 to 90 seconds. And then we get away from it and then we either die or we come back to baseline five hours later. Well, if we carry chronic stress too long, which is the primary thing that causes this all over the world, the broken, invisible machine. Or we have blunt force trauma that's too overwhelming as in the sexual assault, your buddy gets killed in front of you or a parent dies or something like that. Then uh, we stay locked in this way all the time. And if you're in the military where you're trained to protect, ultimate form of flight is suicide. Well, if you feel like you're going to die at every moment or you know, like you have that feeling, even if you don't know why, uh, you're going to want to kill yourself. You know, we're not designed to feel like we're going to die all the time. So if we feel that way all the time, we're going to want to kill ourselves. Or if in the neighborhood where I grew up, the ultimate form of flight where violence is maybe a little more acceptable, um, you're going to want to kill somebody, right? So ultimate fight fight is suicide. Ultimate fight is violent and aggressive behavior or homicide. So 
you can be in a simple argument. You know, you have a cop, a police officer that has this because he's pulling over people every day and he doesn't know when that could be the person that's holding a gun. So he's carrying or she's carrying chronic stress. And then you have a guy that grows up in a poor neighborhood who has the who has the crush a crushing weight of that. And so they both have systems in their in their nervous systems are telling their bodies all the time, even when they're at rest eating, you know, a ham sandwich at home watching Netflix. Uh, so they have they they get into an interaction that's a mild traffic interaction. Well, these nerves in their neck is telling their amygdala that this mild traffic interaction is life or death. Uh, and so some so something horrific ensues from just a an innocuous encounter. So much of what we're seeing in the world today, uh, in terms of reactivity and people from road rage to you know, people getting frustrated with their children that don't even associate themselves with trauma is coming because they have an overactive sympathetic nervous system. And all these other modalities help mitigate against it. But the minute you're not doing yoga every day, it's you. the only way to reset it is to reset it. Like if I, and you can see this on a functional MRI. If I were to uh, scan someone's brain that's lived under chronic stress, and you can get this from having a distant father, a divorce, bullying, right? But if I were to scan somebody's brain that ha is stuck in fight or flight, you'd see overactivity in their amygdala. I could do this simple, safe, 10-minute procedure on them over two days. You could only do one side per day. And then I could scan their amygdala less than five out, 10 hours later, the next day, and all of, their, uh, all of that overactivity would go away, and you'd see increased blood flow in the frontal cortex. Yeah, can I ask a question there? So, it, it, you know, I, I very much understand the the stress and the trauma, and it's it's extremely moving. Quite honestly, to hear what you are saying, I imagine for the people who once they've had this reset, uh, to be in such a different place has to feel like it's the Wizard of Oz and they've landed in the 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 yeah you know, the the color part of the movie. Uh, it must be a tremendous, in its own way, uh, tremendously disorienting. Uh, pleasurably, and and now they have to cope with that in a way. I mean, how do they go forward after the reset emotionally? God, it's your it's such an astute question, Dan, and nobody ever asks. Okay, so you know, in the case of certain guys that I've seen, like I, there was one guy uh, who's featured in the book who was assault, who was sexually assaulted by his stepfather from eight to sixteen. The guy went to jail, um, and he was. Um, he, the guy looks like a Calvin Klein model. You never know there's anything wrong with him. But he's got a wife and kids, and he was suicidal for 20 years and homicidal towards his father, stepfather, for 30 years. Um, but the, the, you know, when you're special forces, this guy's active duty special forces, they don't want crazy special forces guys out there. So there's an endless paycheck that was kind of keeping this guy alive through every therapy you can imagine. I mean, government kajillions on him. And he was still suicidal and homicidal. He went and did this 18 months ago. And just went back to his life. He's a normal guy. Well, in the case of him, he'd been doing therapies for 20 years. So it was like they all kicked in and he's just a guy. In most cases, it's more like, you know, that's not the case, right? So what this does is it frees you up so that the other modalities can work and work more effectively. So talk therapy, you know, we have we are endless examples of like someone going and doing the reset and all of a sudden their talk therapy, they're doing more in a week than they've done in a year. Okay. So that really astute um, observation, Dan, like you need to, once you free up um, access to your emotions, because if a tiger's chasing you, you're not going to be present. 
with your emotions, your kids, you're not going to really be there because you have to be concerned with the tiger. But once that tiger goes away, because you've taken that out of the body, uh, it, you know, yeah, you're going to be experiencing joy for the first time. You're going to be experiencing, you're going to be experiencing life and seeing colors in a way that you haven't, right? But also, um, it's going to free you up to look at yourself. So that's where these other modalities become so important. It becomes important that you, uh, if you go to Stella Center, they're going to evaluate you and they're going to say, okay, let's get you on thought therapy. You know, they, they're going to, or, or um, they're going to be looking at things that one can do to then now process their emotion now that they have access to it. But not everybody needs that. A lot of people just go back to it, but I recommend it if you, you know, I recommend it. Yeah, no, it, it, it's an adjustment. You're suddenly in a different place. It struck me that it, it's going to require its own unique and nuance to work to to move forward and reap, you know, reap the full benefits of, of, of the reset. W one last question before I let you go here. Uh, you alluded to the, the myth of normal. I haven't read the book, know nothing about it, but I think we're on the same wavelength because I have been thinking a lot about essentially how traumatized large portions of our society are at this point. Um, and if you want to conclude, and I'll have a little bit of close to the episode after that, but uh, that's my last question for you or my, my last uh, uh, shot at trying to, uh, you know, get at some of the things that are going on here. Okay, great. Uh, I don't know. I'll give this, I'll give this the, I'll more refer to this because I talk about it in The Iconist. Uh, but I do think, but, you know, Gabor touches on it in uh, The Myth of Normal. Um is this okay? The invisible. I I was thrown away as a child. Okay, uh, that you know primates normally spend eighty five to ninety five percent of their time uh, touching. You know, if you're a chimp or a gorilla, touching their parent for the first two to three years of life. That was true for humans all the way up through us being an agrarian society three hundred years ago. So after fifty thousand years of human evolution, in the last two to three hundred years. We've gone from touching our parent like any other primate for, you know, to, you know, 85% of our waking hours or and sleeping hours to 10 to 15% in a normal household. And then for me, it was 0%. Well, even if it's 10 to 15% in an upper middle class household, our evolutionary biology is not designed to withstand that. That's massively stressful for a baby and a toddler. Okay. So that's already been existing. What's new in the last 20 years is this competition for attention and the extra comparison created by the digital world. You know, we're, we're all bombarded with about 10 to 15,000 advertising messages a day. And now we as human beings are competing with that messaging for human connection. We, um, that's massively stressful in like a boiled frog kind of a way. We would never notice it or associate it as being traumatic. You add to that just the stresses of the modern world what is the content of all that messaging? It's horrific. It's it's the news is an attention economy that's constantly bashing us with the sky is falling because that's what sells soap and cereal. Okay, um, you you compound uh, uh, the, so that makes us feel like indivisible, invisible, and we're not totally kind of being heard. Um, and then the 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 compare. The, the just the the toxic comparison when you see poor rural people without access to technology they're not stressed out it's when you have class stratification and then everyone can see it all the time well it used to just be class but now with the internet 
It's God, that guy's going on a better vacation than me. He's got, has got a prettier wife than me. His kids look happier than mine. His food looks better than mine. That constant comparison creates a constant stress. And then you add on the last part of that is really like we're not designed to live in an artificial box, a synthetic box, get into a synthetic artificial roving box, go to another artificial box, be in it all day, um, and then drive back in that artificial box to the artificial box where we're going to go to sleep. Nature and animals mitigate against the overstress of the sympathetic nervous system. We don't have that equalizer in the modern world. So when you start compounding all these things together, the news, the constant comparison, the digital overload of the messaging, the artificial environments, that creates a chronic allostatic load. And I think 40 to 50% of us have an overactive sympathetic nervous system. We're doing all these other things rather than resetting the system. We're on psychotropics, we're on SSRIs, uh, we're doing yoga 24 hours a day, we're running seven days a week. Some of these things are healthy and good, uh, but we, it would be better if we would just reset the sympathetic nervous system and then live our lives. And so I, I, and we piece all this apart in the book so you can understand your own coordinates. Where are you in the world? You know, you think you don't have trauma, but I named seven symptoms and I would, I would guarantee you at least 50 to 70% of the people when I went through the symptoms, uh, probably said, Hey, well, that's me, but I don't have trauma. You know, if you read the invisible machine, I think you might understand Yet I don't normally, when I normally talk about ideas in a, I don't normally kind of push a book. I normally push my ideas and I don't care if people buy the book, but this is such a chronic ubiquitous problem, Dan, that I would like people to understand their coordinates. Yeah, and that's that's what I took from the book, that it is chronic, it is ubiquitous, it is crucial to recognize what one is suffering from and to know that there's a way forward and to seize it and and to reap the benefits that are possible. That's why the book's so significant. And uh, do you agree? Did you, what did you think of my description of just like this kind of chronically stressed, this chronically stressed out society that's forcing people to be stuck in fight or flight in a way and not even realizing it. Do you think there's... Oh, abs oh absolutely. I, I I think that, you know, we, we see all sorts of news accounts about what online comparisons are doing, particularly to young women. Uh, we see people who are extremely isolated, hence the uh, recent message from the Attorney General. We see, you know, on a sociological and political basis that the country is ripped apart. People are feeling more vulnerable than ever before. Uh, I think all of those things are, are, are taking place. Uh, that's why, as I said, I, I, I was reading the book. I was thinking about what was involved with the uh, things that you had experienced, for instance, and then the larger lens of all the other people who experience things that are comparable and how little they are being paid attention to. Um, and it, it just was, it was just was striking. And then finally it was overwhelming, but overwhelming in a way that gave a solution or a way forward. Yeah. I mean, preaching suicide is um, at an all time high. And you can you look at the corollary, either you have a corollary with the rise of Facebook and Instagram. The minute that comparison starts and on on phones, the minute Instagram and Facebook, went, especially Instagram, went to phones, that's when you see this incredible rise created by the comparison. This is causing, you know, we just have not, our evolutionary biology is not designed to live uh, in a digital instant information. Oh, yeah. No, I, my, my father once said to me that the, the easiest way to drive yourself crazy is to be constantly comparing yourself to others. And now we've, we've foisted on, the, on other people. 
And and the reason why my company is called Sensory Logic is because all the senses do matter tremendously, including touch. And what you brought up regarding that uh, probably explains why I'm in this field in part, because my mother wasn't really ready to have me as a child. It was kind of a, a forced decision by my father to get married and an ultimatum. And uh, she wanted to continue her career, which wasn't so common in the silent generation era. So uh, my mother happily passed me off down the down the train, for instance, going home to mine in North Dakota to anyone who would take me. So uh, what my percentage of, of touch was, I don't know, but it certainly wasn't 85 to 90 percent. Um, so, no, every single thing that you've said ha- has resonated here. Um, we could probably go on endlessly and we probably should even. But in in respect to uh, I uh, one last thing, you certainly may. I just want to say that there's people listening to this and they're going, well, yeah, I have some of those symptoms, but, you know, I never had trauma. But they are relating to the stress part, but they just can't believe that that would change their biology. Likelihood is it has. And explain that the science of that. It's actually with the physiology of that very clearly in the book. Okay, so um, understand your coordinates. And, uh, you know, I, I would just strongly encourage people to um, take a look and understand what's going on inside themselves, even if they if they relate to the symptoms, and but they feel like they've never been, you know, directly traumatized. You know, the, the, the body will tell us a lot. I'll, I'll just maybe add one anecdote. So I, I'm at my dentist not long after I've started my company and being an entrepreneur, as you know well, is is nothing if not stressful. And the guy says to me, uh, I just got to ask you, so what's your occupation? And I explained to him, he goes, ah, I get it. Okay, so I, I normally see, you know, the condition you're in, in trial lawyers and detectives, uh, you know, who are on dangerous assignments. And I said, well, I'm kind of on a dangerous assignment. It's called being an entrepreneur uh, because the body will will manifest and, and bring to your attention inevitably, ultimately, uh, what that stress is doing to you. So I want to, th- I want to thank you so much, Jay. Hey, one more comment on that. I just have to respond. It'll be a little long, but I think it's worth it. Um, if the body keeps the score, the sympathetic nervous system is the scorekeeper. One of the things we explain in the book is how carrying that chronic allostatic load has a cascade of physical symptoms. Most of the physical symptoms it, it is a primary cause of disease. It discombobulates the, if you're stuck in fight or flight, your biology it discombobulates your immune system. You're more prone to get everything from an autoimmune disease to get cancer. So if the, I always, if the body keeps the score, um, this the sympathetic nervous system, we explain how this is the scorekeeper. People should understand and know what's going on inside themselves. Okay, fair enough. So, uh, Jamie, you've, you've been my, my guest. This is Jamie Musher's been my guest here this morning on uh, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. We had for a while Gene uh, Lipoff, the, the doctor involved with the book. It's called The Invisible Machine, The Starting, Startling Truth About Trauma and the Scientific Breakthrough That Can Transform Your Life. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I took one from Stephen Levine, who said, to heal is to touch with love that which we previously touched with fear. Until next time, take care and be well. 